Gateway, good day to you. It, it, again, it is just such a joy uh, to be here with you this day. I, f- I feel like there's a couple obligatory things on a day like this. Uh, either happy Valentine's Day or, I don't know, like down with the patriarchy Valentine's Day. However that resonates with you, <laughs> just take whichever one you want. Um, as, as hallmarky as Valentine's Day can be, it is, uh, it, it is a, maybe there's a redemptive moment to that of us to be able to reflect on the love that uh, is actually lasting. Uh, the Apostle Paul will say things like all these, all these miraculous gifts, these signs of the Spirit working out through the church of healing and tongues and things like that that are beautiful and, and to, to be active in a church. Um, he says, those are all going to go away. What's going to remain is love. And so, you know, on a day like this, let us be reminded that the thing that remains is that self-giving for the good of another. And that's actually the trajectory of our whole time today. And so I just want to uh, prompt you to do something here real quick. If you're on your couch, I'm just going to ask you to get up real quick. And you may not have this in your home, uh, but if you have some bread and some grape juice or some wine, I know it's likely the morning for you, (laughs) um, go ahead and go and get that. And I'm just going to kind of ease us in here into our our passage here today. Um, So run to the kitchen real quick, press pause if you need to. And go and get those elements, because that is the movement of our passage, to talk about the love of God on display in Jesus. And really, this week, other than, you know, Valentine's Day, uh, Wednesday marks a specific moment in the Christian calendar. It's a significant moment for sure, and um, it is called Ash Wednesday. It's the start of Lent, and Lent is uh, 40 days of solidarity with Jesus. You know, before Jesus came on the scene and um, proclaimed that the kingdom of God was at hand, he was driven into the wilderness by the Spirit uh, to be tested by the accuser. And really in that space, which is kind of surreal, uh, the the accuser, the enemy of our soul, is, is trying to get Jesus away from the cross. And even there, Jesus resists because the cross is the trajectory. It is the shape of his ministry. And so Lent is solidarity with Jesus. It's often a space where we um, relinquish something to receive from God. Uh, You might have heard the language, we starve the flesh to feed the spirit. And we're going to be doing that together. So 40 days of prayer and fasting, of uh, relinquishing and receiving. And so we're going to outline some of those rhythms. You can do that with us as a community. You can find that at thegatewaychurch.com, 40 days. Um, And so I would just, I would love to participate with you in that. And uh, we're going to be incorporating our bread reading plan just to to draw those things together in solidarity with Jesus. And that all uh, comes before for Holy Week. And, um, you know, Holy Week, it's, it, um, you have Maundy Thursday and Good Friday, and it all climaxes in Resurrection Sunday, which is Easter. And that's where we will be in our resurrection text uh, in Mark 16 on Resurrection Sunday. I am so excited about that. Uh, and, and, I, and really, I don't know how many of you pay attention to this stuff. <laughs> like, for how many of you, the flow of the ancient Christian calendar, you know, thing that's been going on for millennia now, if that shapes your life's rhythms. No idea. Uh, truthfully, it wasn't until later into my journey with Jesus that that had any significant meaning. And so I'm not, I'm not trying to say, like, in order to be down with Jesus, you have to follow the, the Christian calendar. It's, um, it's really inconsequential. And yet, it does help 
uh, to shape the contours of our lives, to mark out these sacred blocks of time, to help us orient our lives to Jesus's life, his death, and our life to come in his name. And so at this point uh, in the gospel according to Mark, we are right in the midst of this. Uh, Palm Sunday has come and gone. If you can think back before Advent, which is where we left off with Mark, Jesus had what we call a subversive entry. We know it as Palm Sunday. He comes in and, and people are treating him like he's a conquering king, like he's riding in on a stallion, but instead he's riding in on a colt. And in Mark's account, he walks in, looks around, and leaves. He proceeds to pronounce a, this symbolic condemnation of the temple through the cursing of the fig tree. It's, uh, Jesus essentially condemns the temple apparatus as a method of oppression and power, like oppression of the poor and the marginalized. And then from there, we, we picked up last week in Mark 14 at the beginning of the chapter, and there is this like lavish display of devotion to Jesus, and it's devotion at a dinner party. It's this unexpected moment that Jesus says is preparation for his burial. And then today, Mark brings us to another meal. It's a meal that we know is the Last Supper. And I hope that today will be simple. We're just, we're going to work through our teaching text and work into this meal, if you will, to see that with Jesus, we can reimagine life, death, and our life to come in his name. And so this is where we start in Mark chapter 14, verse 12. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' Jesus's disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? And we'll stop right there. See, once again, in the Christian calendar, this we would know uh, this to be around Resurrection Sunday. And in the Hebrew imagination, uh, like, Passover is the climactic moment. And what we'll see today is how these things overlap for us. And Passover went by a couple of names. We just saw the other one right here. It's the Festival of Unleavened Bread. And we too will see why those are kind of smushed together. Uh, and really, if you're unfamiliar with Passover, Passover was a pilgrimage festival, meaning that most of the people who observed the Passover, they would not do so in their homes. They would come to the city. So it'd be this seven-day festival. They would travel from all over the known world to come into the capital city of Jerusalem to remember God's deliverance. And so the, you just have to picture the scene this way. There's diaspora, different languages, sights, smells that are just in the streets. And the streets aren't like the streets of our city where they're wide and buses and cars are going down and back alleyways that can fit like semi-trucks. No, these are narrow corridors, two and three person width. And it's now different languages. It's kind of electric. It's my idea of a good time. And I know for a lot of our community, that sounds like Dante's like seventh layer of hell. It's like, oh my gosh, do not put me in a bustling city. And, and for me, it, like even just talking about it gets me kind of amped. That is, that's the mood. That's the tone of this scene. And I just want to state something that's rather obvious. This is a Jewish festival. And if this feels redundant, just bear with me. Um, it's because of this line that we need to pay attention to it. On the first day, 
And I'm emphasizing that specifically on the first day of the Festival of Unleavened Bread. See, for some reason, midnight has become our magical point when one day gives way to another. But in the Hebrew imagination, it's a little bit different. See, for the, for the Hebrew people, the day shifts at sundown. And I, I bring this up because um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all talk about this day, on the first day of the unleavened bread. But then John, in the gospel according to John, he talks about the day before. And so there's some discrepancy on the timelines and things like that. And so if, if that's bothering you, I don't, I don't know, maybe like two people in our church, this bothers you. So this is for you. Uh, this, there's a perspective, and I, I find it to be convincing, that the start of the day and the ending of the day really matters. That because sundown has come, now Passover has begun. So this is like if um, on midnight, uh, before Thanksgiving, we decided to observe Thanksgiving. And you'd be like, but hold on, it's on Thursday. So what, what do we, why are we doing this? Well, um, in Jesus's case, something is coming. And what does, no, what, what does Jesus know is going to happen to him? He said it three times already. In case you forgot, Jesus said, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And, and only one other time other than the passage we're in today, will Jesus then go on to explain this? And in chapter 10, uh, Jesus said this. He said, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so this, this moment is coming to a head. And so Jesus says, do this. Like, let, let us actually begin this process of observing this meal. And I think this is what's so beautiful is that when Jesus wanted to give his disciples a rich understanding of why his death must take place in this way as a ransom for many, he didn't write them a letter. He, he didn't give some sort of logical lecture. Instead, he gave a meal. And it's a meal that's already dripping with symbolism and he just packs it even more full because it is a meal to see that with Jesus, we can reimagine life, death, and the life to come. See, for in this meal, Jesus shifts those symbols to find their fulfillment in him. We read this in verse 13. So he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And just um, pause right there before verse 15, that Jesus calls these people his disciples is beautiful. Think about the events so far. They're slow to believe. They're of little faith. They're, they're pushing little kids aside who want to get to Jesus. They're, they're like just the scene before, like they're harshly rebuking women who are displaying devotion. And Jesus still here says, my disciples, he moves towards them. Maybe there's been a moment where you've said, I'm too far gone for Jesus. I think that Jesus would have a case to argue against that claim right here. He's moving toward us. Verse 15, he will show you a large room upstairs furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. 
So there's so many theological conversations that come out of this. And the one I, that captures my imagination is, um, and let's be honest, they're not really conversations, um, they're debates. There's less of an interest of this and more just this, like conclusions have already been made before the conversation or the, the talk happens. And, and texts like this end up becoming kind of a battleground of sorts to talk about Jesus's identity and more specifically Jesus's divinity. And I just, I think that's rather unfortunate because at, at one level, like, let us, let us stop ripping Jesus in two and talking about the God. Like, it's, he's Jesus, one person. It's Jesus. So we, we, we like take him down and we parse out his life to say, well, this is his divinity and this is his humanity. But I think that Jesus just sees himself as Jesus, and yet this moment, well, this is like a spy movie, right? Like Jesus says, go into the city, find the guy with the water jug, follow him, go into that. Like what, what is going on? Uh, we look at this and this is the furthest thing from human. Like Jesus has legit predicted his death three times already. And right here, he's kind of moving in that same mode again. Like what is going on? This must be his divinity showing. Well, well what if, and go with me here. This is just food for thought. What if... Jesus, the truly human one, the one who is utterly dependent on the Spirit's leading, what if this is a window into Jesus's intimacy with the Father? What if this is a window into Jesus's intimacy more than a picture of God on display, of God breaking in in a moment? See, what if this is a picture of what it means to be truly human? of being so dependent, so utterly dependent on God that like, I don't know, like in some traditions, they would call this a word of knowledge, that, that God makes it clear what will come to pass. God gives us an inclination, a movement toward that. What if that's on display here? And however you theologize this scene, however you parse it out, Jesus knows the storm is coming. And his move, his move is to share a meal with his disciples so they can make sense of his death. He is still letting them in. He is still trying to help them see. Just think about this for a moment. I mean, this is, the, this is Jesus's life, is it not? His movement toward those who are moving away. You see, the people who share Jesus's table are the people who abandon, deny, and betray Jesus. It's people like you and me. These are the people that Jesus moves towards. And so, yes, it is the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed, 100%, and the people who abandon, deny, and betray him. See, Jesus truly loves his enemies. See, not only does Jesus share a meal here with his disciples, there's something powerful about this moment. There's something Jesus wants his disciples to see. And depending on the tradition that you come from, you're going to make sense of this, of calling it uh, the table, the Eucharist, giving thanks, uh, communion. Uh, and whether that place is merely symbolic or there's something else going on there, that's not what we're talking about. See, whatever tradition colors your theological backdrop, this moment, this story, this story is meant to shape and reshape our story. 
But so often the way that we've arranged our theological furniture creates this moment of like an obstacle to get to Jesus than it does an invitation into the life of Jesus. And so we end up saying heavy-handed things around communion and the Lord's Supper. Like we say things like, well, you have to observe the sacrament every week or what's the point? You're not even a church. As if like being a non-anxious, faithful presence, like the love of Jesus on display in the world is like, I don't know, inconsequential. Or we go to the opposite end and we say, well, I don't want to profane it. I don't want to make light of it. I don't want to belittle it. So I just want to do it once a year or once a quarter, once a month. And either way, this still becomes like awkward furniture we're tripping over and we, it's an obstacle rather than an invitation into the life of Jesus. And my point here is that this story, it's meant to ground us in our identity as Jesus's followers so that we might see Jesus more clearly and reimagine life, death, and our life to come in Jesus's name. So for the rest of the time, what I want us to do is to journey with Jesus into this meal and to allow the spirit of the living God to work on us. You see, Passover, this meal that Jesus is taking, you might've heard of it as a cedar meal. And the cedar meal, it's broken into four parts. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna enact this together. And obviously in this medium, we, we aren't going to do this together, uh, but we're gonna do it through responsive readings and Mark 14. And each part of this meal, it's, it's marked by the head of the house taking their cup. It's a cup of wine. So something that's true of, of like, most Jewish meals is uh, like good wine. And so there's a cup of wine there. And the, the, the head of the house would say a blessing over it. And this is the blessing. Say this, say this with me wherever you are. May you be blessed, Lord our God, King of the world who creates the fruit of the vine. Now do your best to picture this. This is a festive meal and the blessing has gone out. They're there, they're in this upper room, and then following the blessing, this goes down. Verse 18, while they were reclining at the table eating, he, that is Jesus, said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. No doubt, uh, Jesus just killed the mood, and <laughs> immediately the disciples we, we read are wondering, like, well, who's going to betray Jesus? Is it me? Ah, surely it's not me. And at some level, all the disciples abandoned Jesus. But we know something about this. Mark has given us some insight back in verse 10. We know it's going to be Judas who's going to turn on Jesus. And there are some layers at work here, and let me just unpack these in case they're tripping you up. See, first there's our interaction with Mark, which is to say we are Mark's audience. So we are taking this in. He's sharing some things with us that are not at the literary level. That is the narrative level. So there's our interaction, layer one, and the narrative, layer two. And because we know this little bit about Judas that he's gonna hand Jesus over, when Jesus says this in verse 20, we make an assumption. Jesus says, it is one of the 12 which is a way of referring to the disciples. It says, one who is dipping into the dish with me. And perhaps you think this, this is where my mind goes. We think the gig is up. Like Jesus is gonna reach over and say the one dipping with me and pointing to like Judas Iscariot. Uh, that's not what's going on. Remember, this is not a normal meal. 
This is a highly symbolic meal. And really, the gig is not up, not in the least bit. And if you've participated in a traditional Seder, you would know that the table, before you came in, like the table would be set. And perhaps this is like the strongest memory imprinted in your consciousness, like is the setting of a Seder meal. You know, this is the longest religious meal that's been observed, 3,500 years this meal has been observed. And so you would see that there's a bowl, likely common, that would be dipped into. So all there would be dipping into this bowl. And this dipping is called the carpas. And typically you'd have parsley or lettuce, and it would be dipped into salt water to start the meal. But why? Well, one of, one of the oldest interpretations of this start, this dipping, is linked to uh, a rabbi named Rashi, and he links this moment to Joseph. And yes, it is that Joseph, the beautiful coat and all of that. Uh, and if you don't remember Joseph, Joseph is like the great-great-grandson of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who we also know as Israel. He has 12 sons, his 11th son. He shows a special favor to, and that's usually how we hear about Joseph, isn't it? Favoritism, nepotism, all, all that stuff. Um, Rashi does something a little bit different here. He, he sees this moment as actually representative of the descent into slavery. And this is, this is what I mean. Let me unpack this. So there's this moment, if you recall Joseph's story, where, you know, Joseph's kind of like a punk. He tells on his brothers, and so they don't really like him. And Joseph is going to go check in on his brothers who are out caring for their father's flock. And as he's on the horizon, his brothers see him. And what rises up in their heart is a desire to put him out and more intensely to like put him to death. And yet Reuben, who will be accountable for those actions, um, he says, like, well, pump the brakes, guys. And so they just, they throw him in a pit. And, um, you know, there's no water in the pit, so he's not going to drown. And uh, there, then there's some, like, Ishmaelites who are coming. And so they're like, well, sweet, we'll just sell him into slavery. And then Reuben is like, whoa, like, I still have to explain this. And so this is what they do. They take the coat, the beautiful coat, the, the sign of favor. And they take a lamb and they cut the throat of the lamb and they dip the coat in the blood. And that, that is the act of Israel's descent into slavery in Egypt. That is where Joseph goes. And so there was a little while where like vinegar was offered or red vinegar, red wine vinegar, and then as tradition just kind of developed, it became salt water. Because you ever bit your lip or bit your tongue, that taste, that metallic taste, it's that. And so you remember that moment, the descent into that. And so that's the carpus. So this is pretty weird, right? <laughs> like, like if this isn't your tradition, if you don't grow up around it, this can be kind of odd. And now picture children sitting in that moment. And this is a part of the meal, uh, the, usually the youngest at the table. And this is kind of a condensed version, but these questions would then be asked and responded to. And the questions go like this. What makes this night different from any all the other nights? And why do we only eat unleavened bread tonight? And why do we eat bitter herbs tonight? And why do we dip the vegetable tonight? And why do we all recline at table? So at this point, an answer goes out. And usually the answer is like 40 minutes of reading from Exodus. So if you will, turn with me. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it's a, this is a condensed version. Here's a snapshot from Deuteronomy 26. This is, this is the Exodus account of sorts that our ancestors come from Abraham, who in Deuteron Deuteronomy 26 is described as a wandering Aramean. 
a man who God promises to bless. Through Abraham, like though Abraham wandered in lands that were not his own, he was a man who was met by God's faithfulness. And in the wake of God's faithfulness, Abraham's family grew under God's care. And along came Isaac, Jacob, his 12 sons, and and really life for Abraham's family progressed. And yet there was strains that occurred as well. And one of those strains was famine in the land, a drought that led to famine. And this famine eventually led those sons to go and search for food in another land, in the land of Egypt. And there, they met their brother who they thought was dead. Now, they didn't recognize him, but Joseph recognized them. And he too was one through whom God was pouring out his blessing. And there, um, their family is received. And then generations after generation, they begin to flourish in Egypt as they are received into the land. See, Joseph had risen to a like second in command in all the land under God's care and provision. And that care and provision and favor spills over the people. And they, they blossom there. They are doing so well. But then, as so often haps when, happens when you have an immigrant group that is flourishing in a land that is not their own, the uh, like people of power, the people with position, they start to freak out. And in the interest of national security, they start to act in opposition to those people. Those people. And this is epitomized in Pharaoh, who is the king or ruler of Egypt. And in fear, Pharaoh enacts an edict. And this edict is that a whole generation of Israelite boys would be put to death by being thrown into the river. And then those men who are left, they would be ground down into the dust through labor. They would be enslaved and work in such a way as to build up the storehouses and the monuments in the name of Pharaoh. See, it's amidst this toxicity that our ancestors called out to the God of Abraham to deliver on his promises. And God heard their cry. Hear that again. God heard their cry. And God raised up a deliverer and his name was Moses. And through Moses, God confronted Pharaoh's evil in Egypt in one act of justice after another. See, we call these the plagues. And in these moments, God would, he would make space for Pharaoh to respond, to turn, to release. And Pharaoh, Pharaoh would turn away and he would reject, who is this God? Get out of my courts. And God would bring the hammer of justice time and time again so that his people would be liberated. This is a hard story for sure, but at its core, this is a story of freedom. And in response to this, we would raise our glasses and read this together. And you can see the prompts. I'll go ahead and read all of it because I'm here and you're there. Praise Yahweh. And may the name of Yahweh be blessed now and forever. From the place where the sun rises to the place where it goes down. May Yahweh's name be praised. For Yahweh is high above the nations. His glory is higher than the heavens. Who can be compared with Yahweh our God who is enthroned on high? He stoops to look down on the sky and the land. He lifts up the poor from the dust and the needy from the slums. He sets them among princes, even the princes of his own people. 
Then we would all again, with our cups raised, hear this blessing. May you be blessed, Lord our God, King of the world, who creates the fruit of the vine. And you know, uh, Rabbi Gamaliel, familiar with Rabbi Gamaliel, right? Like, <laughs> I think you are, um, you just may not know it. See, uh, one of his protégés, really chief among his disciples, would be Saul of Tarsus. That we know him as the Apostle Paul. He put forward that unless the unleavened bread bitter herbs, and Passover lamb are eaten, then Passover wasn't really observed. And so I just want us to consider this as we continue to move through what is left of the meal and our teaching text. So if you, do you remember what uh, the other name, the alternative name that Mark gave for us of Passover there at the beginning? Yeah, it's, it's the, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And this symbol of the Exodus story, it's about urgency. And just remember, this is a symbolic meal. So the unleavened bread, it is about an urgency. That is, there's really no time to wait for the dough to rise. We read about this in Exodus 12, and it says this in verse 39, with the dough the Israelites had brought from Egypt, they baked loaves of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. And it's here, it's here that we pick back up in Mark 14. Go with me to verse 22. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body. So what on earth does this mean? <laughs> well, think about this for a moment. What is bread for most of the world? Like it's certainly more than its component parts. It's more than uh, flour and water and salt and yeast. And in this case, there's not even yeast because they didn't even have time. So, so it's more than flour and water and salt, maybe if they had it. So, so what's going on here? Well, bread in so many cultures, even still today, it is life. And and. As a corollary, uh, one of my friends, um, he's a second-generation Korean, and uh, for him, rice is like the bread. And he would say, man, if there's not rice at a meal, it's not even a meal. And uh, in, in Thailand, it's it, like relating to rice, like, the, uh, like when you ask, how are you doing? The way that that's asked is, have you had rice today? That's how, that's how integral it is to life. And if you think about bread that way, it is life. And what does Jesus know is going to happen in 24 hours? He knows that his body, just like this bread, it's, it's going to be broken. And that in its breaking, it will become a source of a life and sustenance that's not just for him, but it's for others. You see, it's, it's the bread. And what do you do here to bread? You, you, you pound it, you knead it, you press it out, you put it in an oven, and it is transforming. And so too, Jesus' body, it will be whipped and it will be beaten and broken and he'll be put into his own transforming reality, the cross. So Jesus says, take it. Take it. This is my body. That's the bread. And according to Gamaliel, the thing that we need next are the bitter herbs. This is what's called the maror. 
And if, if you're thinking that's bitter herbs, what, what would that be like? Well, this is, uh, think wasabi, uh, think horseradish, anything that um, like, it's like needles in the nose, things that make you cry. And again, like think about the children. Why? Like why this? Well, here's why. In Exodus 1, we read this. The Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. Isn't that interesting? Out of dread, they respond that way. They made their lives bitter, maror, with harsh labor in brick and mortar, and with all kinds of work in the fields, in all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. See, this moment, this story becomes uh, about getting the story into our body. The meal becomes about getting into our body, not just in a physical way, but in a symbolic way, because this, this part of the meal, it gives the gift of grief. And let's just be honest, like in this time, in this place, in our culture, we are not good at grieving. Grief just being getting what's on the inside out. We're, we are not good at this. We're really good at coping to keep what's on the inside there. And yet a moment like this is, is a moment when we're, when we're able to say, like, we cry because of the innocent lives that are lost to senseless violence. We, we cry because in God's name, women and men have become worse than Pharaoh. When you think about people like Ahab and like all of these, these and judges, like there's this line, they did what was right in their own eyes. They had no regard for the law. See, we, we grieve because there's brokenness without and within. And then this is a part of our story. And so we take this in, we take in the bitter herbs to remember the bitterness of slavery and to remember our need for God's grace. And lastly, we would turn to the lamb. And you see in the gospel according to Mark, so much of it, really two thirds of it is short, it's punchy, it's to the point. It's, it's like, whoa, hold, slow down, Mark. Like, what, like unpack that a little bit more. He's like, nope, we're moving on. Immediately, then, immediately, that's the pace. Two thirds of the book, three years are covered. And then it slows down to a crawl, like progressively slowing. And the last real third, it covers seven days. And there's more detail. And yet what's not here? See, in Mark's account, there's no lamb. Conspicuously so. You see, I think it's on purpose. See, Jesus has taken these ancient symbols and he's reimagined them in such a way that when it comes to the lamb, Jesus is at his finest. See, the lamb comes to the fore and in the last act of justice in Egypt, what we know is the 10th plague, the messenger of death would sweep through the land and take the life of all the firstborn, every house, irrespective, Egyptian, Israelite, whomever. And this act of justice, it is intense, and it, that's because it is. But God does what Pharaoh does not do. God makes a way out. See, Pharaoh sentenced every boy to die, but God provides a way of escape, and it is through the blood of the lamb. 
This wasn't just for Jews. It was anybody who covered their doorposts in the blood of the lamb. And when judgment came through, when justice rolled through, they would escape. They would be spared. That is the Pesach. That is the Passover. Whoever took the blood of the spotless lamb was spared. And as strange as this is, the blood of the lamb, that is the way of escape. And when we look into this scene with Jesus, we just have to ask, where is the lamb? Verse 23, he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. Notice this, they are all drinking from his cup. Notice the language, you will drink from my cup, you will participate. He's inviting them, He's, this is it. And they drank from it. 24, this is, my, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. He said to them, truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day I drink it new in the kingdom of God. See, Jesus knows that the blood of the lamb, it marks out a community. This is is who God's forming in and through the Exodus, a covenant community, a community who is bound to God and who God is bound to. But more so, Jesus knows that the community who entrusts themselves to God, that they belong to God. Because trust is the place of belonging in God. See, this meal, it it invites us to entrust ourselves to God again, the one who liberates. The formula goes like this, that through the lamb, Yahweh rescued Israel from slavery to Pharaoh. And God doesn't stop here. See, when Jesus sees himself into this moment, remember, he reimagines life and death and our life to come. And so what we encounter is that through Jesus, Yahweh now rescues the world from slavery to sin and death. This is what Jesus gave to his disciples to make sense of the final scenes of his life. And it is our gift as well. See, he gives us a meal to ground ourselves, to center and root ourselves in God's redemption. Did you hear that? We have a meal to ground ourselves in God's redemptive story. Life and death are reimagined in Jesus's name. But did you notice that death is not the end for Jesus? Yes, yes, his blood, it will be spilled but he will also drink anew from the cup in the kingdom of God? What? See, the apostle Paul reflects on this moment in saying that for whenever you, the church, whenever the church is eating of this bread and drinking of this cup, they, we proclaim the Lord's death and then get this, until he comes. In other words, this story, it's not just what, about, what happened back then, It's about God's justice now. See, we are the people being delivered. This is about a new exodus. This is about a new deliverance from slavery to sin and death. And get this, it's not just about God's justice now. It's a proclamation about what will happen then. It's like we're pulling both the past and the future into the present to come to bear on who we are, to be who we are, that is God's redeemed. 
this is the fourth cup. Where the past and the future break into the present to reimagine all of life, death, and our life to come. This meal is to ground and center us. This whole series is, is like packed in here. And the elements, like the, the like this whole thing could, could itself be a whole nother series. We, we could talk about the community, the love feast as Jude calls it. It, 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 could, it could break out into, like we could cover this for a year. But for now, what we ought not miss is that this divine act of justice, it is bigger than you and bigger than me. See, this act, it transcends all social and ethnic and racial and political and religious tribalism. See, for Jesus, this move is, it's about breaking our collective bondage to sin. Sin, that mysterious evil, that inward turn and the isolation from God. It is about breaking our bondage to that and setting us free. This is why the church can say, I am hidden with Christ in God. That is our truth. So if you're gonna live your truth, you better know who you are. And this meal, it grounds you in that. It tells the story that is yours in Christ Jesus. So I want you, I want you to stand with me. I want you to stand with me because this meal tells the story of body broken and blood spilled. It tells the story of a new community. And wherever you are, you have your elements there with you, your, your bread and your cup. And I, wanna, I just want to read these words over you because this is the new covenant in Jesus' blood. This is what covers us. This is Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And then get this. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. See, our past patterns of sin, in Jesus, God remembers them not. God actively, listen to this, God actively forgets your sin. The accuser will stand to remind you of those things. And we'll bring those to God because we feel the grief there, the worldly grief, and even the godly grief. And we bring those to God and he's saying, what are you talking about? I, didn't, I don't know about that. We are free. And if we are free, then let us live as though we are free, no longer in bondage to sin. But we, we are the redeemed of God. So let us say so with the bread and the cup, let us take in our freedom in Christ. Let us remember the liberation that we have in Jesus's name. For we are hidden with Christ in God. We are his workmanship. 
What I love about this is that Jesus says, take it. And he says it to those. Think about the table that he's sitting at. He says it to those who will abandon, deny, and betray him. We are not too far gone, Gateway. You are not too far gone. The God of love who gave himself over for you, for me, for the world. He says, this is the blood of the new covenant for you and for me. See, the thing we need to hear is that there is resurrection power in the forgiveness of Jesus. The new covenant says, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. This meal, I don't care if it's a wafer and a little cup of juice, this meal grounds us. And of course there's something more big, like bigger and more vibrant on offer, but this moment, this meal, you in your living room with your family, this meal is to ground us in God's redemptive story. So I'm gonna pray. And as I pray, I invite you to take the bread and the cup and to remember, to draw the past and the future and the present of God to shift and reimagine your life, death, and our life to come. Father, we give ourselves into you. We entrust ourselves into you. We receive your story of redemption and we say in Jesus' name that it is ours, that this is our story, that no longer do we want to live like Pharaoh in the land, beating down people into the dust, including ourselves, but we want to relent. We want to receive your grace. So we turn now and trust and we say in this meal, your body was broken to be our life, to be our sustenance, and your blood was poured out and spilled to cover over us. So blessed be the name of the Lord. Come, Holy Spirit, remind us of who we are in Christ. Fill us afresh and let us be the people who tell the story of your redemption. In your name, Jesus, we bring all of this to you. Amen.